Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wasatch Report. I am Suzanne Sherman. Jeff Johnson is in the studio with us for episode 28. We are taking a break from the mask hysteria today, and we are going to address a topic I have been meaning to get to for some time, and that is the impact that not the virus, not the pandemic, but the government response to COVID-19 has had on the music industry. And I finally found a gentleman who's brave enough to yeah. on our on our show here and talk with us. And I had a conversation with him last week. He is intelligent, articulate, comes across great. You are going to love him. Ron Young from the band Little Caesar. Hey, and everybody. <laughs> before we get rolling with that, though, I want to remind you, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report radio show, PolitiPrep podcasts, as well as their fan page. If you're interested in learning about preparedness, homesteading, survival skills, uh, check us out on the Red Hot Chili, C-H-I-L-L-Y, Prepper, and also Anchor FM. If you cannot listen live, like, rate, share the app. You can support us for as little as 99 cents a month. SuzanneCSherman.com is my website for all the published articles as well as my personal blogs. And by the way, there's a donate button there on the first page if you want to support us that way. Without further ado, Ron Young, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. It's. I'm delighted to. Uh, we had a mutual friend. I want to shout out to our friend Steve who connected us. I was yes. Steve from another friend of mine who was actually a, uh, I believe, a guitar tech. And he has a John Q and Guitar God Radio, our friend Michael, that connected us there. I want to ask you a little bit before we get into the meat and taters of what we're doing. Tell us a little bit about Little Caesars and the uh, Little Caesar, I beg your pardon, and the and the history that <laughs> started. <laughs> yeah, well, we're based. I'm originally from New York. Uh, the band formed in L.A. in basically the late '80s. Um, we kind of stood out from the other bands because L.A. was kind of the center of hair metal, glam metal. And we were a very, you know, tattooed, motorcycle riding, blue collar, blues based kind of band. And very quickly, we got a lot of attention and had some very powerful people get behind the band, like Jimmy Iovine and a guy named John Kaladner and, and had a very big producer that jumped aboard named Bob Rock. And... You know, it was a, a, a big hoopla kind of thing, and everybody got all worked up. And as soon as all the egos got involved and we got caught in some really bad timing, we were one of those left by the side of the road dead bands pretty quickly. And we've been beating it to death for 30 years now <laughs> for, from the fans that we have. And we just keep making music and trying to be honest and credible and connected to our fans, connected to our music. And, uh, you know, we, we go over and tour over in Europe and the UK. Uh, we do weekend runs here in the United States. And uh, so we, we have a nice little, um, you know, just a nice little process, you know, and, and enough of a fan base that we're blessed to be able to go out and continue to make music and keep it rolling. So you still are playing live. You know, when, when Steve... Yes told me that you were going to come on before he gave me the name he sent a link for the video and immediately I knew who it was and I was listening to your other music as well and as I mentioned before we got started on the show it's almost unfortunate that that was what everybody seems to know you by you know the mainstream not the true maybe the yeah, music the, co the cover that got the big push for eight minutes before it all crashed and burned and we've just been you know plugging along ever since so there's a lot more material other videos a lot more records that unfortunately without the power of the corporation behind us is left for people to share and, and spread amongst themselves, you know? Well, we'll be doing that because I tell you, I've been listening to it and what was so unfortunate is that was not an adequate depiction of the talent of the band. Your music is just outstanding. Well, thank I've, you. It is very good. So folks, go over to Google Play or whatever you use if you're on Apple and download some of this music. You will really, really enjoy it. You know, one of the things you mentioned in this article, there is a website if you want to look at them, littlecaesar.net. Correct. And there's links, yeah, links to our YouTube videos or just do a search on YouTube. Yeah, so... Let's discuss, and then we're going to come full circle around that. We're going to discuss the role of the record companies, the coveted A&R guys. I mean, I was friends with a lot of guys getting started that made it very big back in the day. Oh, A&R, you know, we've got so-and-so from Geffen or any other, you know, companies are, are going to be there at the show. So they really wanted to hopefully get signed there. 
what has become the role now of the A&R guy with, res with regards to technology and uh, is, is the coveted A&R guy connection and approval necessary, as necessary as it was before, to getting a band signed? Uh, what about distribution now that everything can be sold and shared online as opposed to having to go to a record store and thumb through it, which I absolutely loved doing. Uh, but how yeah. has that changed for you? Has it been better or worse? Well, it's been better for us because now we're in control of our own you know, releases, our own creativity. Uh, all of that has been completely upended. The music business stopped being the music business at the advent of the internet became the data business. And because really, uh, you know, a quick synopsis, the, the, the music industry kind of fell asleep at the wheel on what Napster and digital downloads and music was going to be. And they let the genie get out of the bottle and it got to the point where record sales now, remember, a record company promotes music so that they can sell hard copies of music. That all went away. So as that evolved of declining units, they went from being a record distributor to being an influence seller. So now when bands get signed, it's a completely different criteria as to what they look for. Uh, what's your online presence? How, you know, what kind of social media influence do you have so that's completely shifted the, the role of the record you know the old school record industry models because there's really no more hard product you know hard product to sell so now all the record deals you know you used to be paid off for royalties and they would take that and your income was mainly derived from touring live live shows and merchandise which is still the case but the, the impetus for the record companies was to move product. So now what you have is them selling your music in order to generate more eyeballs, more attention, and then they monetize those eyeballs. So the revenue now is generated off of streams, off of YouTube ads, um, product placements, all that sort of stuff that they share in the monetization where they used to not do that. And the outcome of all that has completely shifted the onus on great songwriting, the artful side of music business, where it's really about spectacle and getting out there and, and, and getting a, a reach, but not, you know, in the old school way of making a, a great song that would last the test of time. So now you've got six you know, six different writers that have written, you know, a hundred of the last 200 top 10 songs. It's a very narrow field now controlled by a small number of people. Um, and they plug it into a formula over and over and over. Again. And now rather than terrestrial radio and MTV, which is now gone, now it's all about tentacles on the internet. So you'll see an artist like Beyonce will release eight videos in one day. And with those hundreds of millions of views, they make their revenue off the eyeballs that watch that. So unfortunately, from the artistic side and the lifestyle side of what music used to be, that's completely shifted. And unfortunately, I think the quality of music, the breadth of styles of music has been completely narrowed down and diluted. Um, because in conjunction with that, the importance of music culturally has now become very much diminished. When I was a kid, 12, 13 years old, and starting to come into puberty and rock and roll used to sing about, you know, Robert Plant's going to, you know, squeeze my lemon to the juice runs down my leg. And I was like, oh, you know, I think you know what he's talking about. I think I know what he means. And I get together with my other 14, 13 year old friends and just turning you know, <laughs> it was it was our social structure. We listened yeah. to music, we bought the tickets, we an event was going out to buy the ticket and drive you or know, get driven to the concert and then and now all that's gone. Now a 12 year old kid can pick up his phone and look up, you know, squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg and you see something from Pornhub with guy and fruit and a girl and fruit and it's completely taken the, the importance 
and the poetry and the social relevance out of music, which used to be a counterculture way of talking about our feelings, society, social, a lot of that stuff. And now it just, there's a million different ways to get input on that on the internet. And all of that added up has really completely altered the music business over the last 20, 30 years. Now you add to it this, you know, COVID situation and it brings in a whole different set of here's another cancer on on you know the overall system of of the music business as it as it stands today well we're going to do is take a quick moment to thank our friends over at anchor fm and then join us uh go back again with ron young who from little caesar we'll be right back all right, everybody joining us is Ron Young. Today we're talking about the impact, only not only the change of music with result of the advancement of technology and, and how it's changed record distribution, the enjoyment, the quality of music, as well as the reach of artists who would normally likely be very well known. And they're kind of having the struggles like people like us, Jeff, the alternative forms of media having a, you know, being subjected to the whims and the algorithms of the tech industry. But what you touched on earlier is something I also want to go back to is going back to the, the physical enjoyment of the music, the live performances. As a fan of the music, I loved going to these shows. You go and buy your ticket. We'd go to the ticket box and, and get those and go in line, stand in line for hours if it was general admission. You're talking out there. You're, you know, hanging out with people in line. That was part of the event, getting yeah. in there on the floor, squished with the people, enjoying that music. It was a very primal, amazing feeling where we all came together for that same purpose, to hear these guys on the stage make a bunch of noise. And I'm thinking now, are we ever going to get back to that again with response to how the government is handling the COVID virus? And what is it going to be like for you as a live performer. And uh, you said that you're still going out these days. So what do you think this is going to do for you? Well, right now it's put everything completely on hold. Um, unfortunately, there's a, besides governmental response, there's the social response to the hysteria, the hype, the upplaying, the downplaying, all of these things, depending on how you view it. Uh, but one of the aspects from a behind the scenes thing is like Live Nation, one of the largest concert promoters in the world, announced early on in this pandemic that they would now be putting the liability aspects on the artists themselves. So from a behind the scenes thing uh, situation, what that does for Motley Crue down to bands that are playing theaters and everything in between, is it exposes them to any potential liabilities from any sort of litigious nature, uh, you know, from the fans trying to say that the bands gave them coronavirus by some sort of irresponsible behavior, which opens up a huge can of worms, but that adds another nail in the coffin to the possibility of bands working out the logistics so besides whatever restrictions the government might put down upon the industry itself versus how many people can gather and what sort of requirements have to be met for it to, to meet the, the criteria, there's the logistical aspects of where it's so hard to overcome that pretty much until this becomes a, until there's a very effective treatment or a vaccine that gets those in power, uh, to, re to release some of that, there's also the response to it from the fans. Um, because we tour all over the world and I have friends all over the world, business relationships all over the world, I've been keeping my finger on the pulse of how different countries, governments, and fans have been responding to this as they all reach different phases of restrictions and opening up. And it seems pretty universally that people don't want to risk going out and either dealing with the awkwardness of being in a third filled room or the dangers on a health basis. Um, and again, this goes in conjunction with social media and the internet diminishing the reach, power and effect of music as a whole, because 
if you could sit there in your underwear and click on Facebook Live and watch somebody holding their phone up at a Motley Crue show, and you don't have to spend 200 bucks to do it and risk getting ill to do it, you'll get your little fix of it, and then you move on to whatever else you're going to do on the internet. And then all of that added together has really made it not a very hopeful outlook to what's going to happen in the live music, you know, live music industry for quite a while. Yeah, you know, you touched on so many things here. You're talking about the social response. You know, again, people might be judging the band, how irresponsible. Oh, that's a big you know, problem. Yeah. Go out there. I mean, I'm a big, uh, I, I love to participate in a lot of outdoor skills, survivalist gatherings. And one of the largest ones in the country in Rexburg, Idaho, was canceled, not because the people didn't want to go. Many of them were also participating in that same judgment. How can you be doing this? But also the local government government said, fine, get your 800 people there, go to all that trouble, and we will shut you down within a day. But again, if you try and, and continue and say, well, we're going to play live, and guess what? Grown-ups, adults who choose to participate can come. Nobody's forcing you to right. come to these events. Nobody's forcing you to put a mask on your face. Oh, how dare you? You want to kill grandma. And right. you're forced to try to deal with the emotions rather than the logic, because I think it's fair to say that that's really what's running the show here when it comes to the government response to uh, COVID. You also mentioned vaccines. And I'm thinking, you know, what's going to happen now? They've talked about the requirement, the possibility of having health certificates so you can, before you can get on an airplane, well, where are they going to draw the line before you can go to, um, you know, an outdoor gathering like I like to go to or a concert, grocery shopping, purchase gasoline? You know, I, I recognize, I remember somebody else saying, well, it'll be really great to have your health records on your phone. So that way, anybody that wants to check to see if you go into these checkpoints, little mini TSA health points, uh, to go and get what you need to get. I, I am not very positive about what we're about what we're seeing here. So, and, and this is what's what's really concerning to me is, again, you mentioned you also mentioned getting ads. What's going to happen if you are censored and a victim of the counter uh, the cancel culture because you are choosing to play live for audiences who are willing well, to attend? I, I have friends in bands who have tried to be very responsible and approach this from a more libertarian aspect. And they've caught tons of crap. And no matter how hard they've tried to make it known to what lengths of responsibility and sensitivity they're going to, nowadays with the nature of, of our social discord, they run the risk of alienating a lot of people. To back up on some of this stuff, you know, government's supposed to look out for the best interests of, uh, as a collective of the people on a protective level. Unfortunately, now what we have is socials, the, the, the social response and, the, and the, the, the collective response to all of this that has made it so that people can't get accurate data to make accurate decisions and take accurate actions based on truths and then there are all these other things come into play that from the standpoint of artists or promoters or businesses have to take all of this into account. And we tend to forget that it's really up to the people to decide how they want to be governed, <laughs> you know? Well, and yeah, right. This has a whole other big thing Yeah, that's a crazy you're right, that's crazy talk. And unfortunately, this has gotten so blown up because of the time of year it is in this country and even in all the other countries and all my other friends and all my other fans and business associates have their own particular dynamic that's going on within their government and their market and their economy. Ours is magnified because nowadays <laughs> with the type of president we have, with the type of opposition he has, with the infotainment channels 24-7 with experts giving their opinions, it winds up becoming insanely difficult to, to negotiate. And you know, it puts a whole set of new circumstances on what should just be basic science and common sense is gone. It's gone. 
You know, and I'll just share a couple comments. Uh, Glenn and Andrew are both saying, uh, we want a live music show right now. We will go. Yeah. So if you go yeah. live, no, <laughs> I'll get out there. Yeah, you know, it's funny because we just this weekend went and played at a motorcycle rally. And it's a motorcycle rally, the motorcycle club and all the chapters uh, are, are, they're sober. They're also sober motorcycle riders. And some of them, or a lot of them, are guys that used to be in more outlaw organizations and they found themselves needing to back out of that for their own personal health. So when we set up this concert, you know, we had to be very careful as to how we negotiated this. So to make a long story short, we made it so that we had the ability to isolate ourselves. We had the ability to perform our music. We had the ability to follow good basic medical common sense, but it didn't let it ruin the experience of music. So though we were in our particular, you know, protective bubble where we could control things to our own needs and requirements. Mm -hmm. Out in the crowd, nobody was wearing a mask because the particular group of people we were performing for felt that being outdoors and their personal choice was that they felt safe enough to not wear somewhere, somewhere. But in order to do that in, in a string of situations, because you could be playing in a more in a market that's more uh, willing to forego what the experts are saying are responsible behavior. And then you could, the, the tour could then go to a place that's way more uh, restrictive and nanny state type requirements. Trying to negotiate that from a day-to-day -day basis as the restrictions come up and as restrictions go down from a behind the scenes thing of a, of a mechanism of getting a tour back out makes it impossible between the liability issues, between the uh, issues of how do you string these sort of things together months ahead of time, not knowing what the restrictions are going to be where, and then you've got the, the, the venue owner saying, listen, I know you played here last year. We gave you $5,000. We can't guarantee that there's not going to be that many people that come up to give you that guarantee. So you're going to have to, Roll the dice and hope that the particular night that's coming in six months in our particular market, the fans are going to feel comfortable enough and the situation and the numbers here are going to be good enough that they feel that they can go out and come see a concert. And unfortunately, it all gets wind up being dumped onto the particular artist as to booking flights, booking the gear, booking the transportation, putting your crew and doing this from town to town to town where it changes nightly. And that logistical situation alone makes a tour impossible. So I have, I have I'm gonna suggest something else that can make it logistically impossible for the fans as well, which of course makes it impossible for you as a performer as well as for your, your road crew. And we're gonna have uh, some, some information from a friend of mine who's also a career roadie, uh, right when we get back. If you like the live music, or not live, I wish it was. If you like the music that we use to start this show, uh, listen to our ad and you can hear where you can get it yourself and listen to it as long as you want. Music for this program has been brought to you by Roxanne, courtesy of Rat Pack Records. Radio Silence is the album and is available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, RatPackRecordsAmerica.com, and RoxanneBand.com. All right, everybody, we are back with Ron Young from Little Caesar, and we're talking about the logistical nightmare COVID and the government response to it is putting on, on uh, not only for the performers, but for those that want to see the music as well. And something that Ron touched on in the last segment of the show had to do with the fans who are voluntarily showing up. They, they know the risks, they're willing to accept them and behave responsibly. But here's where it can get a little bit dicey now with the technology and contact tracing. 
Let's say you have an employer. You work in a bank. I've been listening to some stories about bankers maybe uh, requiring their employees, not just people in the health industry, but any industry that they can use as a form of, of advertising to make their customers feel safe. Everybody that works here has been vaccinated. Everybody that works here has been tested. Everybody that works here, we know that they haven't put themselves at risk. You might have a lot of fans that want to come out to these that now are, are under this, the, you know, have their employer's thumb on all of their personal behavior and their personal life. I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people have to be subjected to drug testing, whether or not if they have marijuana in their system is going to affect their performance or not, but they're still subject to testing. What about if it becomes known that an employee went to one of your concerts and saw you live? Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, this is where capitalism, led, you know, uh, litigiousness, who's going to protect me? How am I going to protect myself? Whose responsibility? All of this is in, has tentacles that are so far reaching. And, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it winds up being the artist <laughs> that, that gets the brunt of all of these logistical nightmares. And it, it's, it's really unfortunate that you would think in this generation and in this time, with this amount of technology, with this amount of information available, a more personally responsible protocol could be assigned that isn't as far reaching as extreme swinging from both sides of this problem that we have so that more people in, because this is not just the only industry that's facing this, tourism, it's a lot. Unfortunately, the music business has so little support on the scale of what do we protect to try to keep it nourished and keep it going that it's going to be incredibly difficult for the implications that people just aren't my biggest one of my biggest problems is people are not playing this out before they take an action they did that in the in the relief package they do that in the restriction protocols it's like okay so i can go to home depot and walk around there for two hours but i can't go to this other type of business going into a, a, a a pharmacy and the section with greeting cards is shut down because it's non-essential items or seeds I, you're right, a farmer I mean, you guys, yeah. <laughs> right what i pick up to purchase when i'm in that place is now limited for some ridiculously esoteric set of rules that were hastily compiled that have you know, what about the guy that's printing up the business? You know, the, the birthday cards, he's going out of business. It, it, it really, uh, and I understand it, it's complicated. It's politicized. Uh, it's revealing itself as we evolve through this thing. But the level of stupidity, yes, <laughs> so many you. aspects of it. Um, and the lack of common sense that really isn't bolstered in the science that the science, scientific logic, let's put it that way. It's based on science, but the logic that they use is so agenda driven on both sides of this, you know, because it has become, a, and like most things, I usually wind up falling in the middle going, all of you are out of your minds. Yeah. It's, just not, it's, not, it's not the black plague. And it's also, you know, not a hoax. There's something in the middle there. And unfortunately, you're forced to choose which team of sort of craziness you want to fall into or are judged as if you're falling into one side of the extreme or the other. It makes it very difficult to negotiate life or commerce. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, a friend, a friend of ours said that uh, he has... Uh, called it consensus science and that's mm -hmm. what he so yeah, yeah. we're not talking about they're not it's not empirical sciences they're not looking no. at data they're not looking at whatever is going on what they're looking at is well we're making a consensus and it, and honestly that's exactly what climate change is all science today be has become consensus science well 1000 doctors said that covid is bad for you 
while 1,000 doctors said that COVID's not bad for you. So it's consensus science. Both sides have their their people saying it's, it's good for you, it's bad for you, whatever. It doesn't really matter because there's no empirical data now to support the science. They're not looking using the scientific method. They're just using consensus. Yeah, and they're taking they're taking data and they cherry pick, you know, uh, to fit to fit their agenda. Be it no matter where you stand, you're going to find people of prominence, which generally means they have an internet presence or a media outlet supporting their opinion. Uh, that will put forward something to serve their agenda. I, I was a biology major, so I was a pre-med student, so I'm very science-based. So everything I do in basically all my life is, is based on common sense, data, and the fact of the matter is, is the science, as all science, has no agenda. It is what it is. It's our interpretations of this that then guide our behavior, which is completely different than the actual data. So this is where it makes things incredibly complicated, where it makes things very, uh, a whole lot of gray area. And unfortunately, in my particular industry, this isn't, you know, this is audience participation. This is an industry that has been getting harder and harder to get people passionate, harder and harder to get people off the couch, harder and harder for people to uh, pursue the passion that at once performed because it's been diluted. And you add all this up and it winds up just being an incredible cancer on all of this. Well, you know, something that's interesting that they're doing with boxing is I like to box and I like to watch it. Now they're showing live boxing from Los Angeles and there's no audience. So they have blurred figures in the background and then yeah. now typing in, you know, fake cheering. And before they were doing that, I thought, well, this is kind of interesting because you could actually hear their exertion and their breathing. And then that's something you don't hear typically when you watch that that type of sport, but I was thinking as I'm watching this, what's, what would this possibly be like for live performers uh, such as yourself to perform to zero audience knowing it's being streamed? And by the way, how convenient is it that the very entity that's feeding us all this fear is ultimately profiting from the panic it has created in so many people? Could you think yeah. performing to an empty venue? It's not music. To me, music is the energy exchange between the performer and the audience that you're performing for. You know, recorded music is, is that. It's, you're, you're trying to create this so-called moment in time. So, you know, the Guns N' Roses album, debut album, will sound like that every time. It's just a moment in time. The magic of live music is wanting to be in the room while that energy exchange is happening between the players and the audience and what comes from that and the the passion and desire to be part of that moment is what's driven live music and like david just made a comment there um what a lot of people are forgetting is all the satellite industries that that live off of this the security people the bartenders the crew people the equipment manufacturers that there's a very long stream of people that are affected by this and i know like the troubadour an iconic venue in los angeles closed forever revolution out on long island new york the gone forever closed? i did yeah. not Does, is yeah. that because of this yeah yeah they, oh they that's can. heartbreaking uh you know you've got these developers who look 20 years ahead and they look at a big giant condominium that can fit in that same footprint right. and generate way more revenue that has the support of the West Hollywood city council. Of course. Um, so it's all these things when you add it up, I know so many passionate bar and theater open, uh, owners and managers that they, they were struggling to be before this because of the dilution of a uh, live passion for music and touring bands and all these stuff. 
and they get no relief. They get no support. Uh, I know a guy up in, in Ottawa that he's suffering and he's trying to do, they're trying so many things, letting the venue do live streams from their stage, uh, co-fundy pages, hoping they can survive until this ends. There's really no end in sight. And so what's going to be la- left in the wake of this and, and in the ashes of this is going to be really, really depressing and, and doesn't have a lot of rosy outcomes looking ahead. So, you know, Ron, you said something that I really didn't consider before. And, and then backing up also the government response, they know that their response is really geared towards emotionalism because what they're saying is we can't do nothing. Yes, you can actually. And then even Joe Biden said this in the debates and we hear this all the time from, you know, go all the way down to the local officials. We know our, it is our job to keep our constituents safe and healthy. No, the law is intended to protect life, liberty and property, end of story. But they just can't help themselves. But something you said with regards to the local councils Having a condominium complex is going to generate far more revenue with regards to income or property taxes than will a club like the Troubadour or even the smaller dining establishments with or without live music. Look on television now. If you're paying attention, you're going to see all of these delivery services. So not only are we not going to go out and have a meal, I love going out and interacting with the people around me. I really do. I, I know I come across as really antisocial, but if anybody sees me in person, I'm quite personable, and I like that experience. I hate seeing the masks. I hate losing that nonverbal communication, the facial expressions. But now we are being forced to accept that having food delivered to your house, contactless service, is the new normal. People are going to lose that desire to go out and not only dine in these establishments, but go and hear the music. If you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'd like to share um, some words from a friend of mine. I have to make sure I don't mention his name because as we discuss the cancel culture, he is actually, you know, he's justifiably concerned about the ramifications. But what he's saying is here, and he's saying the pandemic, I'm going to say the government, has single-handedly crushed, and this is a gentleman that's a career roadie, crush the entire music and entertainment business. It isn't that just a large number of performance are affected. This includes their individual crews as well. Sometimes as many as 150 people, like you mentioned, are employed for any one band at any given time. With 150 people stop touring, stop flying, stop staying in hotels, stop eating and drinking in restaurants, stop taking Ubers, stop traveling on tour buses, and stop spending money in general. The downhill effect is catastrophic. Airlines, hotels, restaurants, bars are all affected by the industry when these people are not working. Multiply that by the thousands, and you can imagine the ramifications. I personally know travel agents who are in danger of going out of business, truck and truck drivers sitting at home not getting paid. There are only so many commercial driving jobs to be found. Event staff, all the quiet, empty venues are sitting at home and not getting paid. Something else he mentioned, too, was the cyclical nature of this business, where sometimes they'll go on tour in Australia because of the reversal of the seasons, and they put aside this money. So they know there's going to be times where they're not going to be getting an income, but now this friend of mine, it's 15 months for him. We'll be right back after this message about Anchor FM. Yeah, it's the long reach of this and the ancillary fallout from all the satellite industries and and commerce um, is horrible. And we have not even begun to see, you know, the the fallout from this. That is permanent uh, because... You know, obviously, if you're part of the service industry side of the music business, you can go and do something else to try to offset the loss of revenue. But for the venues themselves, um, anything that's a hard, you know, a hard location, they, you know, they still, they got to keep the bills paid. They got to pay their taxes. They got, 
they have, they're so underwater with no hope of bringing it back. And, you know, the, the thing is, is that what, what bothers me most about this is, is I understand that early on in something like this, it takes a while for the data to come in to make rational judgments when we figure out just how bad this is going to be. And like I say, my personal position is it's not the Black Plague, and it's also nothing to thumb your nose at. And unfortunately, because of the nature, and again, I'm not just talking about the United States, it's in a highly hyper-political moment. This is happening all over the world. And unfortunately, uh, you know, when you, when you put any small group of people in charge of regulating large groups of people with all the agendas, the fear, the money, unfortunately, like many other industries, this has not been approached in a way where if we we can protect the most vulnerable and come up with a way to protect the most vulnerable and figure out a way to keep this at its proper level of maintenance, monitoring, and treatment, and allowing other people who are less vulnerable to continue trying to support economies and industries. And, you know, for us, it winds up being, well, okay, well, we can do some Facebook live performances, you know, it's, but that's it. There is no Uber. You can't, you can't keep a, a band alive by asking for donations on Facebook. That works for a couple of weeks. Radio and, Alaska. <laughs> yeah. And so, unfortunately, the particulars within the music industry itself uh, is really a very bleak situation. And yep. it's, it's really sad because, it, like sure. I say, it it's, it's, was not doing well to begin with. Well, because before, you know, back in the good old days, you'd go on tour to promote your album. And how cool it would, you know, was it to go out and hear this music and, and support it and go and buy that album the next day if we haven't already. And so now what happens? How do you, how do you even go about this? Well, you know, the thing is, it's not even about the album anymore. Yeah. Because it used to be the record companies, the 90%, the lion's share of those. But the job of the record was to release new material with the support of the record company helping you get out to play to promote their product that they got the bulk of the revenue from. And you made your money from how many tickets you sold and how many t-shirts you sold. And that's now completely dried up. So between not having nobody buying physical product anymore and you can't sell any more shirts and you can't sell any more seats for the live show, zero revenue absolutely no revenue and uh you know the other thing is is from the governmental sort of aspect here's a group of guys that have kind of worked hard to keep their revenue you know the music business was a shady place so on record you know i know a lot of major bands that took ppp loans to keep their crews working for a while keep them sustained but all of my low-level, mid-level band friends, that they didn't have any payroll that they could go to their bank and show to get some kind of loan. And unemployment, you know, if you're on tour in London, in, in the UK, you're not showing any revenue that the US government needs to, you've got something to fall back on, which is what you were paying into. So again, you keep adding all this stuff up. And it's gotten to the point that making music now is like, you might as well be a sculptor or a ballet dancer or a fine art painter. You're doing it because you've got this thing inside of you. And whether you're going to eat macaroni and cheese for the rest of your life, or maybe you'll be able to go viral and, and become an influencer, whatever that might be, um, is really, really, it's gotten to be an incredibly narrow band of hope on a commercial level. Jeff? So in our area, Suzanne would know what I'm talking about because she's been to Watkins Glen International. It's a raceway. NASCAR yeah. comes here every year. Yeah. So this year now, the hundreds of thousands, and that little track becomes the one of the largest cities in New York State right. on that weekend. There's hundreds of thousands of people in that track spending money. There's all these trailers selling shirts and you know mm -hmm. these little 
little die-cast cars are their favorite drivers, and they're making millions of dollars. People are going off that track, going to the little town of Watkins Glen, spending millions of dollars in all those stores down there. And they wait and, all year for that one weekend. All and they, those most of those guys are, yeah. yeah, most of those businesses are getting all their revenue for almost mm -hmm. for the entire year off of one event. Yeah. And yep. now it's gone. gone. And, yep. and beyond that, that track has all sort of club events and other smaller racing venues. Uh, Suzanne would know about those. But, you know, now the, all those are gone. So there's 20 weekends that those businesses all around there expect all these people to be there that are spending money there. They're all gone. That industry is gone. So now all these businesses are hurting in Watkins Glen. So it is it is not unlike the music industry because they're trying to get people in those seats to spend money. Yeah, it's, it's gone, the entertainment gone. industry and, and all the satellite. And and again, you know, what exacerbates all of this is, again, you, you put in the extremes that wind up influencing this stuff and the reactions and the behaviors and the logic and the protocols. It, 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 it is so difficult to get some clarity and some common sense where you have like Sturgis, the big motorcycle rally. We played there on the 50th anniversary. And it is, I mean, so many people live off of that. They held it this year. And they made really strong attempts to demonize it mm -hmm. because it went off. And for me, I look at it and I see, well, okay, I generally believe the truth is usually closer to the middle of things. But the unfortunate thing is, is then you have people that are acting irresponsibly because they want to be rebellious. They make their behavior be irresponsible as a statement against political things. That is not good. The virus doesn't care who you're voting for. The virus doesn't care what you, what you believe in. And on that other side of that coin is the, the complete restrictive nature for the good of everyone that completely rules out any sort of ability to even find the smallest glimmer of hope or light. And as if it's not difficult enough to deal with these sort of shifting and sort of communal behavioral shifts that need to happen under a circumstance like this, um, it, it makes it absolutely impossible because like what you pointed out, things like cancel culture, things like, um, you know, from the cancel culture all the way to demonizing actual science because it doesn't line up with your viewpoints. And it just makes it absolutely impossible to find some hope or find some alternatives. And I've got so many friends that, you know, we, one of my other businesses, we have an office in New York City and it, it's a ghost town. Those hundreds of thousands of people that used to commute into Manhattan who are now working remotely. So all the restaurants, all the clothing stores, all of that satellite stuff being situated in, in uh, the, the masses of humanity, those people aren't there anymore. And so people like Jeff Bezos, because he happens to be online, the shifts, the just the mag just giant shifts in commerce that's going to happen now, that I know is going to be maximized by a small number of people. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, there's much bigger aspect of all of the shift in technology and what it means for commerce that's now happening at light speed before anybody can figure out a way to save their own butts in this and find a window of, of you know, forward motion. And it's, it's really, really unfortunate. And we're talking about here specifically something to do with something that's creative and artistic and expressive and there's no expression <laughs> that can happen when you're locked in your own home other than, and unfortunately, what's net, that social interaction is so part of this integrally that's now gone, it's going to affect the actual art that, come, that used to come from the people that you used to go to for your passion. So it's, it's yeah, really I kinda, unfortunate. I kind of wonder if you're going to be writing music in this, in I hate that term, the new normal, in this, in this time. Yeah, yeah. Is it going 
going to affect the kind of songwriting that we see because these performers know I'm never going to get to perform this live. Well, uh, listen, I, I know for from from my band and my my family of, of people that I play with, uh, no, nobody's looking to jump into a room and write songs um, just to express themselves. And a lot of that is because what's happened to the the music industry as far as releasing something that people actually pay attention and listen to. You know, I have friends that play with all these legacy artists, basically people that make millions of dollars, you know, and on the level of the Bon Jovi's and the, these people put out new music. They could they could do 80 million in revenue live, but their new album, nobody cares about it. They're going to see the stuff that when music was vital to their to their fabric of their life. They want to hear bad medicine and, you know, you want it dead or alive. It's like, oh, yeah, Bobby, have you downloaded his new album? Nah, nah, nah. I want to, I want to see Wanted Dead or Alive. And that shift of what music meant to somebody and how it became ingrained in their priority of entertainment and buying the ticket and all that, unfortunately, the new portions of their creativity don't have the impact that it did when these people became big enough to sell an arena. And, and it's really, <laughs> I'm not a fan either. This is, this is the great thing about social media where I have to be careful of what I say about my friends and other people can speak their mind freely and not get a phone call going, you a-hole, what were you talking crap about my new music for? What? <laughs> Comment, not Ron's. Ron takes no response. No, pass the sweet and sour shrimp. And, yeah. and we love we love Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi's new album is horrible. I have. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, I didn't live that many miles away from Bon Jovi. I mean, oh, so see, you guys same, are... same with uh, when I grew up, uh, we had um, uh, Bruce Springsteen playing the local bars down at our on the yeah. little island I grew up on. So, I mean, these guys were down yes, there. I mean, we knew they would play the, these little venues. Yeah, the Meadowlands and all these. And, you know, the, no, the, they were playing Joe Pop's bar. Yeah, they right go. down to my yeah. right down yeah. to my hometown. The Stone Pony and all these yeah. other places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, we yeah. love all these guys because, you know, they we went and saw them locally in these little, little dives and they put on great shows and we loved them for it. Yeah. Well, to Ron's point, I didn't even know Bon Jovi had a new album out. So there you go. See, that's the thing. All of that machinery of that was very controlled. The radio stations that you drove around all the time in your car listening to, and what you shared amongst your social circle. You weren't inundated with 50 million pieces of music and bands. You don't even know the names popping up on your computer screen. Right. It's become so diluted that it's really hard to, to filter out and find the stuff that really, really uh, is on an artistic and a powerful level because there isn't that momentum that used to well up behind the next Zeppelin record or Queen record or, you know, and it, it slowly over time become more and more and more diluted. And I think unfortunately the art that's been created because, you know, from our aspect of things, when you used to have a whole machinery behind you supporting your creative efforts that are now down to you record in your own basement with your own, you know, because the studios are all out of business now. And you used to write with all these songwriters and there was a lot more going on that was fertilizer, let's call it, for the new growth of great music. Where now it's, I mean, I know guys that go, well, why should I even spend all that money recording a record when we're going to lose money on this? Right, right. You know, Metallica talks about it all the time. It's like, why should we do a new album? It's just going to be money out of our pocket. and All people are going to do is give us crap on social media. If we, if we don't make a, a perfect Metallica record, everyone's going to be a critic. We're going to lose money on it, and people are still going to scream, you know, you know, master of puppets, they're not even, people are going to, so it, it's from this side of the, from, of the equation, these are all really difficult things to negotiate, to not only try to create 
you know, vibrant art, but the reality of the commerce side of it that goes with all of these things, you know, bands now have to be their own graphic designers and video producers and record engineers and produce, you know, and social media experts. These are things that record companies used to do. All of that structure is gone. It's all self-reliance now. So the, the newer acts that you come that come up now, a lot of it is because, well, the guitar player happens to be a tech kid and he knew how to manipulate Google so that their song came up first in a search engine. That's not what made a great song because you can manipulate a search engine or new way to place your ad on Facebook. The music used to do the talking. So. Yeah, I was going to quote that song earlier, let the music do the talking because yeah, it was so powerful back in the day, you know, and I think about the emotions that it brought up. Yeah. It, you know, I find myself listening to music that I listened to back in the 80s and the 70s. And, uh, you know, our, the, the guys that provide our music for this show, Roxanne, they've got an album that's written, but they don't even know when they can go and record it. And why yeah. even bother if the only way you can sell it now is online? And Jeff and I, you know, and as well as multiple podcasters, we know uh, the dilution, the saturated market, the placement that we get, the algorithms, and how these tech giants are hiding our messages. Ron Young, Little Caesar, how can we uh, at least share so people can download your music and, and get it and follow you? Well, you can, you can find us on iTunes, even though that, even that's disappearing. Um, you can see our videos on YouTube. You can Please follow us on Facebook. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're just a blue-collar, hard-working, got nothing. We do this because we love to do it for, with guys we love to do it with, for people we love to do it for. So, you know, we just try to be honest. But, yeah, just go to, go to iTunes and sample our stuff and download some of it. Tell your friends about it. You know, it's a labor of, it's a labor of love now. It's and I have it's it's outstanding music. You're really talented. Thank you, Susan. I appreciate that. Thank and you. It is, it's a little tough to find you on Facebook. So let me let me help you guys out. Um, type at Little Caesar Official. Once you get to that official. Yeah. So we didn't we didn't even get into the conflict with the pizza company. Yeah. And that whole corporate nightmare. But that's a, that's good for another time because that's a. It's, well, uh, you know, people, if they use their Google Assistant and say, play the Wasatch Report radio show, it takes you right to me. But like for me, if I say, play the Red Hot Chili Pepper podcast, it takes you right over to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Yeah. I like how the universe keeps you humble. I'd say at least a few times a month, I get a letter on the Facebook Little Caesar music page complaining about how she their pizza was. <laughs> and they, I mean... Little see all these guys with motorcycles and tattoos. What why did you think this was the pizza page? Yeah. And I write them back and I apologize for how weak our pizza is, just you know, to be cordial. But it, it, it's amazing to me. <laughs> our good friend Phil said uh it's it's uh changing the guard. It's a changing of the guard. Sadly, it's not yeah. The amazing music that's talking, absolutely, and that's why you know I don't listen to modern, you know, the regular radio stations anymore. Uh, I think Glenn had said, sadly, we've listened to the best music we will probably ever hear uh, by now because of the lack of incentive uh, incentives that you're going to get to go out and create more music. By the way, oh, by the way, uh, we're going to have Phil on to talk about falconry. That's the gentleman that we went uh, hunting oh, with. Oh, he's amazing! Yeah, we went. I'm going to totally. Oh, die. I've got a thing for, for birds of prey, and I, they're just the coolest things on earth. I will send you really when we do that show. We went yeah. out to uh, Vernal, Utah, and hunted with his goshawk and yes. his and visla, and it was an amazing experience. I'm actually yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you all this now just so you know. Ron Young, it's just been delightful having you here. Thank you. This has been a nice discussion. I appreciate it. Little Caesar is the band. And again, uh, listen to the original stuff. Don't just listen to that unfortunate one popular cover because that is not an adequate representation of the <laughs> depth of talent. Thank you, Phil. You just made a very gracious comment there. Uh, well, we, we will keep in touch because um, – you have cows and all sorts of really cute. Yes, I've got I've got cows, and I'm like this socially liberal guy that's got a lot of firearms. And I was a Boy Scout, so I'm prepared. I was taught at an early age how to dress down a squirrel and cook them and start my own fire and all that kind of stuff. I I you know 
We're going to go on the Prepper podcast, and I do have, uh, by the way, our homesteading, the front, the Pioneer book is coming out pretty soon, Jeff. I just uh, recorded some more video and some voiceovers for that, so hopefully we'll get that out. And uh, Ron, we'll have you back again. I would just thank you for our conversation. No, it'd be nice. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Everybody that's on the live, uh, hang out. We're going to chat a little bit longer, Ron. Thank you so much. You're welcome to see sure. me. All right, everybody. I have, to, I have to go deal with cows, actually. Okay. <laughs> I've, got, I've got coyotes stalking them. Oh, dear. So, yeah, hot wire. Hot wire is going in. And- <laughs> All right, thank you. All right, everybody. Let's go. Okay, thanks. Bye, kids. This has been the Wasatch Radio Report. On behalf of Jeff Johnson and myself, I'm Suzanne Sherman. I want to thank you for listening.